we get to continue our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We picked it up last week, or two weeks ago actually, by reading all of the the book of Ephesians, but before that we hadn't touched Ephesians since all the way back in end of February, beginning of March. So last week we did the first, or or a big chunk of chapter 4, and this week we're going to continue with uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Before we do that, let's come to God in a word of prayer. Just ask him to bless the reading and proclamation of his word. God, we come to you this morning, and we admit that we are not yet the people you are making us to be. God, in moments of frustration and anger, in moments of despair and hopelessness, we celebrate that your spirit comes that you speak your words of love, of forgiveness, and of freedom to our hearts once again. That you remind us not only who we are in Christ, but also who you are making us to be. And so we ask that you would meet us here through your word and spirit again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're continuing with Ephesians 4, and so we're going to be reading verses 25 through 32. And this is the uh, NIV. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for others, excuse me, what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, so that God's word or your words may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, of brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think... Paul's words here in Ephesians 4, the end of Ephesians 4, are especially timely and especially relevant in our world today. There are around us, uh, if we don't have to look far, to find many reasons to, and I'm going to use Paul's words here, many reasons to be bitter, to be filled with rage and every form of malice. Lots of brawling, lots of slander. And all the way back in verse 25, lots of falsehood. That's the world, it seems, that we live in. Just just last night, uh, Kaylee and I had somebody at about 3 o'clock in the morning come and ring our doorbell and run away. And I don't know if that's happened to you before, uh, but we didn't think it was funny. Uh, (laughs) Instead, we we woke up and uh, went to the front door and... Uh, 
we had a chance, an opportunity to respond even in a very small way and to decide in that moment. Are we going to be angry? Are we going to be vengeful? Or how ought we to respond, perhaps in a better way? On a bigger scale, far more important scale, we are enter. well, I was going to say we're entering an election season, but the, we've, we've been in an election season for a long time. And we're, we're entering the end of it, thank the Lord. Uh, because it seems like we don't have to look any further than our own country and, and our national news, national politics, to see plenty of anger, plenty of malice, plenty of falsehood, of brawling even, certainly of slander. What do we do with that as Christians? How should we respond? The temptation, I think, for all of us is to participate, to, to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders, whether that's something small and silly like home defense in the middle of the night or something much bigger, like worry that if the other guy gets in, whoever the other guy is, that somehow the country will come to ruin. Instead, Scripture offers us a broader perspective. You see, the problem with all of these things, with anger, with bitterness, with rage, with brawling and slander, with malice, all these things really are are aggressive ways of trying to get our own way, or reactions to not getting our own way. It's trying to take control of a world that is beyond our control. And so as I said, Scripture gives us a model and some instruction here for what it means to to take a broader perspective, to step back for a moment and understand who we are in Christ and what our role, what our responsibility is as Christians, even in the world today. And so we have these instructions that Paul gives us in these few verses. But before we get to the instructions, I just want to remind us that the instructions start with the word therefore, which is a great way to start a passage. It means that we don't have the luxury of doing what we often do, which is breaking scripture up into these little discrete chunks where one day, one week we deal with this and the next week we deal with something else and the week following we move on to something else entirely. The word therefore reminds us that whatever Paul is about to say and what he has said in these verses is based on everything that he said before. Before it's over here for you. Everything he said before. And what Paul has said before in the first three and a half chapters of Ephesians, he's talked about the kingdom of God coming to bear on earth. He's talked about the the forgiveness and the power of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us now, so that we're freed not only from slavery to sin, but also from the other powers in this world. What Paul has said before is that whoever we used to be, whatever we used to think or do, all of that, even the things we believe now, whether that's about, again, about how we live in our own homes or how we operate in our society. All of that needs to be submitted to the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. 
is to not live in our own power, not to make decisions based on, a, on my need or my perspective, but rather to submit everything and all of me to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, this is how in your anger you cannot sin. And there's something there, I think, for all of us too. Paul doesn't say, therefore, don't get angry because of who you are in Christ. Or therefore, when you get angry, you can be sure that your anger is sin. No, he says, when you get angry, and all of us are going to get angry, don't sin. And then he gives us two ways that, or two things we ought not to do. Two ways that anger becomes sin or anger leads to sin. It says, don't let the sun go down in your anger and don't give the devil a foothold. Letting the sun go down in your anger is obviously, a, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a picture, right? He's not saying you can only get angry between about 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Paul's saying, don't ignore your anger. When you're angry, don't pretend that you're not angry. When you're angry, don't put it off and deal with it the next day. Acknowledge your anger. Don't ignore it. On the other hand, if, if you don't ignore your anger, you ought also not to give the devil a foothold, which is to be consumed by your anger. To be so focused on your anger and, and so, so captivated with rage, with bitterness, with malice, that you allow Satan to whisper lies in your ear and to direct your life and your heart away from Jesus. So when we get angry, Paul says, don't ignore it on the one hand, but on the other hand, don't be consumed by it. And so apparently the way, for us, the way forward for us is somewhere in between those two extremes. Now, just another aside before we see what that way forward is and what Paul says it is in this, section, in this section. It might seem in our world, and whether we're dealing with politics, whether we're dealing with the ongoing effects and limitations of COVID in our society, or whether, like me, you're facing any number of personal issues or smaller things that don't affect anybody else except for you. It probably seems like managing anger and all of these other words in verse 31 that we're just going to all lump in under the one term anger. It seems like dealing with all of these is a full-time job. That if we're not supposed to ignore it and we're not supposed to uh, be consumed by all these things that are going on, that we need to always be paying attention to, to how we're feeling, to what's going on in the world filling our lives up with an intentionality saying, I need to not ignore my anger, but I need to not fixate on it. Now, the problem with that is twofold. It's first that we know as Christians that we're not supposed to simply be known for what we're against. The second is just this, the psychological reality that if you're always telling yourself, don't, don't, explode with anger or don't ignore your anger, then you're just going to be thinking about your anger all the time. Like that old saying, if you know, just try and clear your mind, don't think of anything, especially don't think of purple elephants. Right? And now if you're weak-minded like me, now I'm thinking about a purple elephant. 
It doesn't work. Simply to tell ourselves what not to think about or how, what not to do. This is why Paul says in these verses, do something useful. Instead, right? Rather than, being, rather than ignoring your anger, rather than being consumed by your anger, do something useful with your hands. You know what's not useful? More talk and less action. More sort of going around and around the circle again so that I can be heard. That's the danger of a sermon, right? That I get up here and I talk for 20 minutes or so. But is my life any different? Are our lives any different because of our talk? Do something useful, Paul says. Why? So that you can contribute to those in need, verse 28. So that you can build others up, verse 29. Paul's reminding us that, that anger and all those other words in verse 28 that are, or excuse me, in verse 31... Anger and all those other words that are associated with anger lead us to focus on ourselves. But that who we are in Christ is not an identity of self-focus. It's an identity where we are filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and equipped to bless others, to contribute to those in need, to build others up. And so in verse 31 he says, don't do all these things we've already talked about. But do... Do do these other things. Verse 32. Be kind. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Just consider for a moment the rarity of those virtues. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Whether, it's, whether you're at home alone in the middle of the night or the middle of the day, whether you're engaging in, this, in the political sphere, in the, in the social world, consider the rarity of kindness, of compassion, and of forgiveness. These are virtues that are increasingly rare in our world, and for that reason, increasingly valuable, or at least increasingly valued by our society. To use a simple example... We uh, have mines all over our country, all over the world, to mine for coal. And coal, which is just basically carbon, coal is plentiful. And so you can go to the grocery store and you can buy a bag of charcoal, a big bag, for probably five bucks, maybe for three bucks if it's on sale. But diamonds, which are also essentially carbon, now, we've got a couple geologists here, so they can correct me if I'm wrong after the service. But diamonds, which are essentially carbon as well, are exceedingly rare. And so a, a tiny little diamond, even an ungraded one, I have one tiny little microscopic ungraded diamond in my wedding ring. It's a couple hundred bucks. A nice polished diamond is thousands. There was a diamond found this past week in Lesotho in a mine. It was about the size of two uh, two golf balls. I don't know, maybe about this big. Several hundred carats. It was valued at $18 million. The rarity of a diamond means that we value it 
as a society and as our, in our world, we value it far greater than something as common as coal. Even though diamonds and coal are both essentially carbon. I think one of the things that we see in this passage is that we really do have the choice. As humans, we can, we can and we do allow all of these things to come out of our mouths, to, or, or to come out of our lives. All the things associated with anger, bitterness, rage, brawling, slander, uh, falsehood, where he starts in verse 25. But when we are becoming new people in Jesus, Paul challenges us to do something and to produce something that's far more rare in our world. To be people of compassion, of kindness, to be people people who forgive. I think of the teachers who are kind to their students, especially after week one of classes that haven't gone the way, certainly the way classes have gone in the years past, of, of the rare beauty that that is. I think of parents who have compassion on their children, even when their children are annoying them to no end. Yet mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, after a long day doing other things, still returns home, maybe to the kid's bedside, and just spends some time with them, reading them a book, sharing a short prayer. It's beautiful. It's valuable. It's rare. And I think about forgiveness, the everyday, ordinary kind of forgiveness When a friend, a brother, or a sister in Christ sins against you, not for the first time, but for the tenth time, for more than that. And again, we say and try to mean it. I forgive you, even though I wish we weren't in this situation. What a beautiful, what beautiful and rare gifts these virtues are to our, to our world. But we need to remember where we started with the therefore and where Paul ends this passage. He doesn't just say, do all of these things, be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving out of the goodness of your heart because you should be better people than you are. He says, do this because in God, Christ has forgiven you. In other words, what has been poured into you ought to flow out from you. The forgiveness that God showered and lavished over us as his people is what ought to flow out of us. Because his forgiveness is something that fills us up to overflowing. He's given us far more than we deserve, certainly, and even more than we need as well. This is what Paul the apostle is so good at in in the letter to the Ephesians, but in all his letters. And drawing God's people back to the climax of the gospel. In, In reminding us of the center of the story and the core of our identity with Jesus Christ. And helping us see how everything we do 
should flow out of who we are and who God is making us to be. And so as we continue this sermon series, we're going to continue looking at some of the practical outflow of what it means to have Christ in us, what it means for us to be one with Christ. And we're going to see, we're going to continue to see that in Christ we find comfort. In Christ we find challenge for the ways of being that are not godly. And in Christ we find our true selves again, that we are forgiven, that we are loved. We are no longer slaves to all those other things, but instead we are free. This is who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you once again, this day, once again, this week. And God, we can do nothing more except celebrate your great love for us, your overwhelming forgiveness for your people. It's so easy, Lord, to look at our world and to become disillusioned, frustrated, angry, because things are not different. Things are not the way we think they should be. But God, we ask that rather than reshaping a world to our viewpoint or to our perspective, that we would first allow our lives to be reshaped by you. God, give us the confidence, the boldness, not just to say these words, but to be obedient to your word and to your spirit as you continue to speak words of love, of comfort and forgiveness, but also words of challenge and of a call to obedience to us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our song of response is going to be about the victory we have in Jesus. So if you're able, please stand and we'll sing victory in Jesus together.